Thank you so much for tuning in to the Defending Christianity podcast. I'm your host, Levi Dade, and in this podcast, we aim to talk about the evidence and reasons for why the Christian faith is true and why it is good. We do this with the hope to encourage the church to engage the culture around us and to be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have in Christ Jesus as 1 Peter 3.15 commands. Thank you so much for listening. God bless. mention in your book that false teachers creep in unnoticed and secretly to bring in disordered ideas about God. How might this be happening with progressive Christianity in the church today? What does that look like so we can know how to kind of heed the different warnings around us? Mm. Well, it's very subtle. It's not something that happens overnight. Uh, What tends to happen is Uh, A pastor will begin to rethink his views on some things and then maybe bring the congregation along very slowly. That's what happened with the church that I was at. This This pastor had actually already deconstructed, and he was basically taking years to bring his congregation along with him. I don't think every pastor is quite that... Um, intentional with it, but but we can all drift. It's a very subtle drift, and this is why uh, in in uh, the scripture it says to guard your life and doctrine closely. We have to be very intentional about making sure. Like my pastor, my current pastor always says, preach the gospel to yourself every day. We have to do this. We have to remind ourselves so that when things start to drift off, we can go. Wait a second, that's drifting too far from this. I'm just I don't need to go there. And so it can happen very slowly. It can happen over a long period of time. It can also happen maybe a new pastoral hire comes into a church and he's got more progressive views and and it might just be something like he might teach something and people kind of scratch their heads about it and then everything's fine for a month and then something else happens you know that's often how it happens it also can happen on the small group level you have small groups that are sort of walking through life together and they can start embracing a more progressive type of christianity and then they're influencing the people so it can happen ground up and, or top down or both but it's it's not overnight it's always a slow and subtle shift, which is why I think it's so important. A good friend of mine who went to the progressive church with me, she stayed longer than I did, um, I think a couple of years longer. And then I ended up running into her and and she told me she had left. And I said, oh, what, what you know, because back then when I first initially had left, I didn't say anything, you know, publicly about it or anything. And of course, I was walking through my own faith crisis, but I'd seen her and she said, well, I, it was so subtle that I couldn't, I just would have red flags once in a while. So what I did was every single sermon, I kept a notebook and every time the pastor said something that gave me a red flag, I just wrote it down. And she said, after a year, I looked back at everything I had written down and it was like, oh no, we're leaving. This is, and so, you know, maybe just that's a good practical tip. I always tell people because she, you know, if it's just one thing, we all want to be forgiving and merciful. You kind of, you know, people flub, they say things, they they fumble over their words sometimes, or they might say something can be misunderstood. I think we all want to be graceful when people do that. You just, you want to give people the benefit of the doubt. But if it's a continual and habitual thing where it's like, this is happening like every week, then you can go back and look and say, wow, okay, yeah, this is not, this is not good. That's a great practice. And I would even say like for social media, Two, when we notice something that doesn't really settle right with us regarding Christianity or um, any other topic that just doesn't, it doesn't seem to line up with what is true and real objectively to kind of take note of that and be intentional to not just let 
people think for you, but think for yourself. And I think that's really what we want to encourage listeners to do. Um, so thank you so much for sharing that. I love that tip. So one thing that I really loved about your book, Elisa, was that in this process of seeking the truth and trying to build your life upon, well, I guess trying to rebuild the blocks and make sure that your foundation was firm, you delved deep into church history. So I just, I love that because I love church history. So did you find anything that encouraged you or maybe still encourages you as you sort of defend Christianity against these progressive ideas today? Yeah. And now, of course, the, you know, the early church fathers are not authoritative like the, right. the writers of scripture are. But I remember I never had read early church fathers in my life. And so I was kind of I got the the Kindle where you it's like three bucks. You get all the early church fathers all the way up till I think the uh, after the after the uh, Council of Nicaea. And I was nervous. I was nervous to read and because I thought, what if what I've believed all my life is just so radically different from what these guys, where these guys were at that I'm the one who has to say, okay, what I've adopted is progressive, right? That's the thing that I was like nervous about, but I was willing. I was willing to do that and say, okay, I'm going to go back. And I just I remember reading Augustine. Augustine, well, he's not super early, but um, you know, fourth, fifth century. Augustine was one that I read first, and I was absolutely just like I, I don't even know how to describe how just immensely impactful reading Augustine's Confessions was for me, because it was just like what this you know I don't of course agree with Augustine on everything, but. I mean, this is a brother in Christ who is pouring his heart out to God in repentance and he's being specific and it was convicting to me. And and then I went earlier and I just I even remember reading Clement, who, you know, many we can't know for sure, but many people even think was a contemporary of Peter. There's a Clement mentioned in the New Testament that was working alongside Peter. Many people think that that's the same Clement that wrote um, the, the letters from Clement. And I'm just reading him, he's talking about sin, and he's talking about repentance, and he's talking about all these things that in the progressive church would be like, oh, those are the fundamentalists. We don't like those people. And I'm reading Clement going, no, this, you know, this is more in line with what I've been taught, you know, in but in a hopeful way. And so, of course, you know, um, as my faith reconstructed, I I did realize I had some cultural beliefs about Christianity that I had to to deconstruct and reconstruct and all that. And and I'm I'm thankful for that. But that core that core was there, and I was really pleasantly surprised reading. Oh my goodness, reading Justin Martyr and some of these people. I mean, this is like that's the that's the core of Christianity that I was given, and so um, it was it was exciting actually. Yeah, it definitely definitely is exciting to to know like okay, wow, this is something I can trust historically and this is a firm foundation. Um when you were kind of digging into church history, were you just encouraged by the fact that all of these issues that we're seeing um arise on I mean just concerns that we're seeing arise on these different um, core beliefs of Christianity, like how they're being attacked by progressive Christianity, where you just encourage maybe that this is not new. This has been 
happening for so long. Oh my goodness, yes, reading things. Well, again, Augustine, when, so, I mean, a good bit of his writings was refuting this guy Faustus, who, I, I believe I have that right, who was challenging the authorship of, uh, if I'm remembering this correctly, challenging the authorship of the Gospel of Matthew. And and this is where, you know, there's a quote that goes around that uh, is, you know, attributed to Augustine. It's a little different in the in the actual writing, but I mean, he's essentially saying, if you, if you believe what you want in the Gospels and throw out what you don't want, it's yourself you believe, not the Gospels. That's a paraphrase. But, you know, these people, and then Ignatius, oh my goodness, uh, interacting with some of the Gnostic heresies and just it's so similar. I mean, there the, there's this quote from Ignatius where he's talking about how um, the the Gnostics of his day are trying to separate the father from the son and pit them against each other, and that's exactly what the progressives are doing with the charge of cosmic child abuse. And there's so many things that were so similar that it, it was actually extremely exciting to read some of that stuff. Yeah, for sure. Um. It definitely is encouraging to know that this is not new. Christians have been facing these things head on, especially to know that there were apologists who were facing these issues. Do you think that could just inspire Christians today to be more faithful in apologetics in this issue of progressive Christianity? Yeah, I hope so, because that is that was some of the most thrilling stuff to read is, you know, back in the first century, the issues were a little bit different because of some of the, you know, because of the um, greet each other with a holy kiss. People thought there was like some kind of sex orgy going on in the Christian meetings that were private or, um, you know, when they're doing communion, they, they were charged with cannibalism because people didn't understand that um, they weren't actually killing someone and eating their flesh and drinking their blood. And so there were all these there were charges of atheism. People thought Christians were atheists because they weren't worshiping the pantheon of gods, uh, which was, they just, in that culture, they couldn't wrap their mind around this group of religious people saying, you know, they, they had made sort of a special um, caveat for the Jews, but but who are these people saying they don't believe in this God and this God? They thought they were atheists. So the, the early apologists, second century on, were basically defending Christianity, saying, no, we're not, you know, we're not participating in cannibalism, we're not atheists, uh, and, and it was... They, they had to provide a defense. And it's so, yeah, it's, I, I think that this is a tradition that goes back way early. This isn't just sort of like, oh, no, all the atheists are out of, out of you know, on the Internet now, so we need to figure out what to say. This is something Christians have had to do from the very beginning. I mean, a good portion of the New Testament itself is dedicated to refuting false teaching. And so it, it's definitely something that, that I hope and wish Christians would take more seriously. Yes, I I do as well. And that's one thing that I just, I pray that your book does, that it will propel Christians into apologetics as they realize like, okay, I actually really need to um, be trained in this so that I can not just accept these ideas, but be faithful to the gospel and to the truth of Christianity. So, Elisa, um in light of all of this, what exactly can Christians do? Like, how do they respond to this? How, how might they respond to a friend who may be adopting progressive Christianity? They may just see little elements of it in conversations with them. Like, what, what is something that they could do? 
I think a good thing to think about if you have a friend or a loved one who might be adopting some of the, these ideas is before you try to refute what they believe, maybe try to figure out why they're attracted to it. I think that's a huge element because there could be um, there could be somebody that just has been really hurt by the church and you just refuting their new beliefs is probably not going to be all that helpful to them, but maybe showing them some love and compassion and acknowledging like, yeah, God hates spiritual abuse. He hates that. Um, Jesus hates abuse. And let them see, you know, because they, they probably, if they're a loved one or their friend, they know what you believe and they probably have made some assumptions about you. And if you can show them like, no, I love you. And I hate that too. I hate that abuse you went through that legalism. That was wrong. You know, just acknowledging, but, but you're going to have to do a bit of diagnosis, I think, to, to figure that out because very often, well, and that's because that's the thing about it is it's when somebody just flips on a dime and radically changes their beliefs, there's a reason they're doing that. It's not just because, um, you know, and, and again, not everybody flips on a dime. I mean, some deconstructions take 10 years, 15 years, um, but, but there's like a, there, there's always a reason behind it. There's something, there's a wound there, there's something or else they wouldn't feel the need to change their beliefs. And so maybe figuring out what that is and, and getting to that first uh, might be an effective way. Also, I think asking a lot of questions um, to show genuine curiosity about what somebody believes, how they came to those beliefs, um, and, and do that in relationship. And you can you can get people thinking by asking questions, too. And this is why I always recommend Greg Kogel's book, Tactics. This really helps you to, to figure out how to do that. Yeah. So would you say that questions were something that helped you in sort of discerning, you know, progressive Christianity in that church that you went to? Like, were you asking the agnostic pastor questions and were the answers that you received satisfactory or not really? Well, not really. So, you know, I was very confused about what was going on in the class. Like I was, I did not understand what was happening. So this pastor who I really thought he and I were on the same page. I thought that he and I had the same beliefs. And I mean, I was so naive that in the beginning of the class, I actually thought I had thoughts like, is he trying to see if we can spot deception? Like what is happening? And so I remember talking to him once and just expressing some concern over this book we were reading. And he just said to me, like, you can ask me any question point blank and I will answer you honestly. And I don't know why, but these two questions came about. Do you believe the Bible is divinely inspired? And do you believe in hell? I just, I needed to know his answer to those two things, which he answered without hesitation, yes to both. He believes in the Bible is divinely inspired and he believed in hell. And, and what I didn't realize, though, is that I would discover this later in a class, is that he meant different things. When he said hell, he meant something different than I meant. And when he said divinely inspired, he meant something really different. He meant more like inspiring. And... And so, uh, you know, there can be a bit of a bait and switch with language. Um, but yeah, I, I did ask a lot of questions. But what I learned early on in this class was that people were asking a lot of questions, but they didn't really care about the answers. They were just trying to ask more questions. In fact, if you would express 
certainty on a certain point. You were kind of viewed like, okay, well, she just needs to do the work or, you know, she's not quite as enlightened. But if you expressed agnosticism, if you said, you know, I don't know, I don't know what I believe about that, you were praised, you were viewed as enlightened. And so it created this culture of doubt where questions were being asked just to ask more questions, but nobody really cared about landing on an answer, at least in the class I was in. And I do find that to be generally the case in the progressive literature I read there's a lot like even Rob Bell's book Love Wins you know the evangelical church was up in arms about that book and then the progressive said all he did was ask questions and it's true like he doesn't in the book say here's what I believe heaven is or hell is he just asks a bunch of questions and it's like but you you read all those questions and then it leads you to a certain conclusion so some questions can actually be answers masked as questions which i bring out in the book but um yeah it's like this culture of doubt and as long as you don't actually make any kind of definitive statement about something you're fine oh okay Okay, so that is so interesting. And you mentioned doubt. And I think a lot of Christians may hear that word and they think, well, that that may be sinful or that doesn't sound quite right. So what do you mean when you say doubt? And maybe we can talk about sort of the biblical definition for doubt and faith and the distinction between the two. Mm -hmm. I think that um, a lot of Christians have a faulty understanding of what Christian faith is. In fact, what's interesting is if you read the atheist literature, a lot of Christians have the same definition of faith as atheists, which Richard Dawkins, the new atheist, famously said, you know, faith is belief in some, I'm going to paraphrase, but belief in something in spite of there being no evidence for it, and sometimes even because there's no evidence for it. And I think a lot of Christians, they they hold that belief, but that's not what biblical faith is. The word faith in the Bible has more to do with trust. So you're trusting in something, but that's not a blind trust. It's a trust that's based on evidence. I mean, look at, look at Romans 1. Paul is talking about how every person who's ever been born— has knowledge of God already in them. They can look out into creation and not just know that God exists, but they can actually know certain things about his attributes and his nature by looking into creation. And so that's evidence, right? That's we we aren't just like taking some kind of a blind leap. If we look at how Jesus responded to doubters, he responded with evidence. Look at John the Baptist, who literally encountered the Trinity with his eyes, his hands, and his ears. He, he baptizes the Son of God. He hears the audible voice of the Father, and he sees the Holy Spirit descend like a dove. I mean, there's probably never been a human being encounter the Trinity like that in all of history. And yet, when he's in Herod's jail cell, he's questioning, and he sends his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one or should we look for another? And Jesus doesn't respond to him by saying, oh, John, you should just have faith, or why is your faith so weak, or stop, you know, he he said, go tell John what you've seen and heard, the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear. He was referencing a prophecy that Jesus fulfilled, that John would have known about. And essentially, I think Jesus was saying, look, John, look at the evidence. I have fulfilled these prophecies. You know I'm who I say I am. And he was so tender with John about that. And so if we look at trust, it's really about putting active trust in the person of Jesus based on uh, the really good evidence to do that. When you say that before or even during this class that you had sort of a faulty definition of faith and mm-hmm. um, okay, what what did that kind of look like for you? Well, I think growing up, I thought that if I experienced doubt about what I believe, that that would be evidence that my faith was weak. 
I thought that if I doubted something, I thought I had to be absolutely certain because if I if I doubted at all, that meant I had weak faith. And that was a, that was a bad definition of faith because doubt and faith are actually not opposites. They work together. You actually can't have doubt if you don't have faith because you can't doubt something if you don't believe it already. That would just be unbelief, which actually is the opposite of faith. Unbelief is what's the opposite of faith. So doubt bubbles up within the context of faith, and I think it's good and it's healthy. I think Christians should address their doubts, seek out the evidence, think it through, don't just push it down. Uh, walk through those things. That's how we get a more mature and a stronger faith. That's how we that's how we differentiate between what we believe and what our parents taught us. We can't just, you know, take our parents' beliefs without questioning them. We have to question all of that and say, why do I believe this? And so in that in that way, I think um, doubt and faith work together really well. And and the Bible describes unbelief as the sin, right? Unbelief. Going back to Romans one, Paul Paul is saying suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. So people when they disbelieve. Um, that that they're actually rejecting God, the, the knowledge that they've already been given. Whereas doubting it, I think is healthy and good if it's honest doubt. But, but there's really two kinds of doubt. There's doubt, honest doubt seeking answers. And then there's doubt that's seeking justification for the unbelief that's already there. And I think that's, there's a really different, two different animals there. Okay. So how can... Um how can we as the church create a place where people are able to ask questions, but not be led to reject Christianity, you know, but be led to a stronger faith? Well, and this is something that the church needs to do a lot better in, in general. There are some churches doing a great job with this, but but the problem is, is that a lot of churches they think that in being intellectual is somehow at odds with your emotions or or the spirit or something like that. And so they don't want to do, they don't want to do the work of studying and learning some of this stuff, um, either because they just want to have the experience or they actually think there's something wrong with being more intellectual, that that's something that's against faith. And so the sad thing is, is that many churches don't have anybody who can help people give answers to some of these questions. And so it's sort of like relegated to this, maybe, oh, maybe we'll do a two-week series once a year or something, but you can't do that. You you have to have, in fact, biblically speaking, if we look at Titus and the qualifications for elders, they're supposed to be able to refute false teaching. That's literally the elders' jobs. They're supposed to be able to, to do that, um, which is going to require study. It's going to require investigating some of these questions and learning how to answer. And so I think that part of the reason that churches haven't been and generally may not be a safe place for people who are going through honest doubt is because they don't know the answers. And then if you don't know the answer, the temptation is to react in fear. Oh, well, we, you just have faith or just read your Bible and to kind of shove it under the rug rather than say like, okay, I'm going to engage with you on this. And this is the, the hope I would even have if any you know, pastors or leaders of churches are listening to this. You don't have to know all the answers. You just have to be curious. If somebody comes and says, I have these questions, engage with it or, or have a ministry that engages with it and says, look, we don't know the answer, but we'll walk through this with you and we'll, we'll investigate together. And then, you know, look at some good resources and, and go from there. But it takes a lot of energy and it takes intellectual energy. It takes relationship energy. And I just, I don't know if a lot of churches, especially with the seeker sensitive model and the megachurch model are willing to do that kind of, of kind of work. 
Right. Yeah. And what's so interesting is this intellectual aspect of the Christian faith, because Christianity doesn't just involve the heart, but also the mind and the whole person that this, this has been the view of Christianity, like in the early church, it was, you were engaging your heart and your mind. It is so sad to me that we have sort of lost that today in the evangelical church. Yeah, Yeah, it's very true. So it's just encouraging to like hear um, what pastors, what teachers, what um, Christians can be doing to kind of um, change, change this pattern and um, help, help Christians to ask questions um, find answers and have a stronger faith as a result. And I think that's exactly what your book, Another Gospel, helps Christians to do. Um, so one thing that we try to do at the end of these podcasts is a small little segment called Apologetic for Apologetics. And it's basically just however long you'd like to make a case for why apologetics matters. So really in relation to our discussion on progressive Christianity, why do you think apologetics is so important for Christians today? Thank you for that question. I love making apologetic for apologetics. Well, first of all, okay, so I would say this. First of all, Christians should do apologetics because culture demands it. We have to be able to give an answer to people when they ask us why we believe what we believe. If we believe what we believe is true, we should have no problem saying, sure, bring it on. Let's let's talk about the reasons. Number two, we should do it because the Bible actually commands it. 1 Peter 3.15, um, always be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within you. The Greek word that that is coming, that, that's translated into English as sometimes in some uh, translations it says defense, others it says answer. It's the Greek word apologia, and it's actually a courtroom term. And so it's not saying be ready to tell people why you think Christianity is hopeful. It actually has to do with logic and reason. In a in a courtroom situation, if charges were brought against you, you'd have the opportunity to bring an apologia. You'd be able to defend why you believe you're innocent or this or that. And so that's the word Paul used to say every Christian needs to be ready to give an apologia for what they believe is true. And so I think that culture demands it. The Bible commands it. And, and I think that just what I've seen is that when Christians start to learn some of this stuff, it's exciting. It's fun. Come join the party. It's fun. And, um, and I, I, you know, I think that if every person listening to this would take it seriously, you can be that person in your church that when somebody comes to a pastor and says, Hey, I don't, you know, I'm really questioning what I believe, you know, Hey, you should go talk to such and such. And the ministry that you can have, um, just on the local level is so tremendous and deep and immense and, and life changing for people. So there's, there's my apologetic. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> so true. Culture demands it. The Bible commands it. That is excellent, Elisa. Well, thank you so much for um, just sharing your wisdom and insight with us today. I feel like this topic is so multifaceted. I feel like we barely scratched the surface. So thank you so much, Elisa, for taking the time to share with us your insights. And I really enjoyed this conversation. Oh, me too. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining us today on Defending Christianity Podcast. I hope and pray that you were encouraged and strengthened in your faith. And if you're someone who's seeking truth, I hope and pray that you have gotten closer to that because Jesus is the truth. Join us next time on the Defending Christianity Podcast. God bless.